Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Coach's Corner where we speak with other coaches and those who inspire, move, and motivate people to action. Listeners will learn about coaching and the many coaching niches and have an opportunity to ask questions of the coaches who are my guests. I'm Coach Andrew Poretz from Ingenuity Coaching. I help people to discover and fulfill their passions and greatness. My mission is to inspire and challenge you to dream big dreams and with my coaching help you to manifest those dreams into reality. You can visit my website at www.myfuturecoach.com and you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash coachandrew. If you're listening live and you have a question, the phone number here is 646-929-2893. You'll also be able to listen live on the phone and if you press the number one, that will let me know you want to ask a question. We also have a live chat room right on the show page where you can feel free to join in. I've known my next guest, Warren Zena, for over 15 years. Warren is a professional business consultant and organizational development coach. He's worked with hundreds of executives and sales professionals in multiple business verticals over the last 12 years. He specializes in a unique approach that combines measurable, actionable coaching with behavioral modification techniques that take into account the client's unique emotional and historic blueprint. His core philosophy is that true change is possible, but it requires a combination of personal commitment, awareness, and openness to new ways of thinking and action. Warren lives and works in the New York metro area and is available on a one-on-one basis or for small or large group programs. Warren Zena, are you there? Yes, I am, Andrew. Welcome to Coach's Corner. Well, thank you. That was a very lovely. Look at how he did that. He had a little disc jockey going on. It was very nice. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And maybe I'll put on my little Ron Lundy sound. If, 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 Please. If, if you really uh, want to hear that, I just might do that. In a little... wait, wait, here he is. Ron Lundy. Okay. I just wanted hey, to do that. You know, I'm, I'm kind of curious to know how many people... Who I actually listen to this know who Ron Lundy is. I, I don't. I know, of course. I know you do. But that's a that's a good one. That's an obscure. I think maybe like a Casey Kasem <laughs> might be might be better. You know. Well, I got a hold of that one because you know Ron passed away a couple of weeks ago, and he was yes. uh, one of my the voices of my youth. Yes, mine too. Misspent as it was. Um, yes. So you so so where are you calling from? Well, um, I'm in a public space because uh, I am at a conference. So I went to this quietest spot I can find. So please excuse the ambient sound. You'll probably hear some plates and people walking by. And uh, I apologize for that. Oh, that's fine. You're just getting me hungry. Yes. So, Warren. I have so that effect on people. You do. You, peop- you, pe- you I see you around. I want food. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means either. But, uh, so you have an interesting background. I was like looking at the, some of the information you sent me about yourself. Uh, in all these different arenas involving yeah. uh, coaching, sales, and management, leadership. What is, what's, what's your favorite thing that you've done in, the, in those arenas? I, I guess there's probably two. I mean, I've, I've worked in teams of salespeople where I, I, I have uh, started out just helping them generate better techniques and abilities to cut through some of the sales challenges, but to develop skills in their particular areas where they have boundaries around you know, fear of rejection or inability to think on their feet, et cetera, et cetera. But something about 
working with large groups or you know, even small groups of people is really fun. It becomes like a team effort, and um, I've had a couple of experiences where, as a result of some of the training I've done, I actually kind of became almost like a de facto manager, almost a mirrored the management of the actual organization. And it was good because I was able to come in as an outsider and manage people without having to have the politics of working at the company. It afforded me a really fun opportunity to watch people really develop and grow. But you came in from outside and uh, That's right. on a... That's right. Yeah. I was brought in, actually, initially I was brought in to manage a sales manager mm. and help him develop. And I started doing some work with his team more like to show, kind of train the trainer type right. work, if you're familiar. And then it seemed to be working. So I would come in every month and work with the group and then break out individually with individual salespeople that had some specific issues. And um, it was great. And we actually ended up uh, creating a really nice program. And um, it was pretty rewarding. So you, know, so I know you, you, say, you train people not only in, in training the trainer, but you also train sales, correct? Sales that's right. That's right. Yep, yep. That's actually of interest to me for a lot of reasons. One of the things I was curious about, have you worked with people who are not necessarily in a sales environment but who might benefit from sales training? That's a good question, Andrew. The answer is yes, and here's why. Because let's face it, if you have your own business, you're a salesperson. So, so most people are good at doing something, right? right. Some people are good at... I don't know, optimizing websites or building websites or they're good at fixing computers, let's say, right? They're experts mm-hmm. at that. But they don't know how to get business and they don't have enough money to hire a salesperson. So they, in fact, become their own sales team. So how do you teach somebody who has no sales skills whatsoever to sell their own services? It's very difficult for people. So very common is for people to call me who are more entrepreneurs or have their own businesses and they want more business they think their problem is marketing, which it might be. But in fact, a lot of it is they just don't know how to process the sales channel, so to speak, within their own business. So um, I help people figure out ways to speak about their business. I create a, help make like a 30-second like commercial, an elevator pitch. Um, people, it's amazing. You know, when someone's really good at something, it's amazing how as good as they are at it, I find are not good at articulating it to other people in a way that makes people want to work with them. So I help people first figure out, how do you sum up the value of what you're doing? What's the core value proposition? What makes you better than the other guy? Particularly if it's a uh, common type of service, for example, someone who fixes computers, and let's face it, you can go on Craigslist and find you know, hundreds of guys that say they fix your computer. But, you know, why would they hire you? You know, why you? What's unique about the way you work? Why would somebody listen to your elevator pitch and go, oh, I want to work with this guy? And that's not an easy thing to do, but I help people do that. That's part of a sales process. And the second part is asking for business, just asking something for, will you start tomorrow? You know, people don't do that. It's amazing. So these are just little small things, but it's getting people to kind of think differently about the approach they have with people and, as a result, maybe creating more opportunities than they would. Well, that's awesome. You know, somebody in, the, in a business like mine, as a coach, uh, I'm really good at helping people to figure things out. But what I'm not great at is getting my message out in a way to somebody that says, "Yeah, let's 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 start working together." That, for me, is the most, probably the most challenging part of this business is that's the sales channel. 
Absolutely. Getting new customers is any entrepreneur's biggest problem. If, look, let's face it. If you've got people calling you up every day asking you for coaching, you'd be brilliant, right? You just deliver what you do. You know what you're doing. It's your sweet mm-hmm. spot. That's fine, but you really you don't have the luxury. You have to go out and get people to actually take you on. And what I find the biggest barrier is people have a problem asking for money. Asking for money. That's right. That's right. Because when you basically when you're asking someone to work for you, you're saying hire me, pay me, give me money, and money issues, money fears, beliefs about money are a huge consistent issue that I see with entrepreneurs. It's very difficult for some reason. The way we're wired up is it's easier for a lot of people to offer their services to somebody for free than it is to charge, have them charge. Now, not to say that that's what people do, but I'm amazed a lot of times that the real sticking point becomes what they're really afraid of is that they're asking somebody to give them money. And is it any money or is it a particular value, a particular dollar? Well, you know, usually it's tied because, as, as I was saying in the introduction that you said, you know, a lot of it has to do with their own value that they perceive themselves. What am I worth? Mm-hmm. What is my service worth? You know, I mean, there's two sides of it. One is I have to charge a certain amount of money because I need to eat, right? I need to pay my bills and to sustain my business. And the other is I want to charge because I think that my business or that what it is that I provide offers some value. And what is that? Are they equal? If I charge somebody $150 an hour, does that mean that I feel that I'm actually worth $150 an hour? Now, some people do. Some people are really have no problem with this. Some people are really brilliant at it. They're very, very easily uh, accepting of the fact that they have to charge and they're, they're, they're closers. But some people really have a real challenge with this. This has been a real big issue that's come across my, uh, some of my, uh, my engagements over the last five or six years. So what are some of the strategies you might use for some, with somebody to get past some of those barriers? Well, you know, as I was saying to you earlier when you were talking about this, the way that I try and help people work with this stuff is it's to stop thinking about it and just do it. So in other words, it's, it's, it's less about talking it out psychologically, trying to understand it. It's really more about the next time you meet with somebody, ask them for money. It sounds so simple, right? It sounds kind of stupid. But you'd be amazed at how long sometimes entrepreneurs in particular will wait before they actually start to ask someone for, like, okay, so when do you want to start? Or I charge this much or take out a contract and put it in front of them. It's, it's amazing. So as a result, what I'll do is I'll tell somebody, okay, so let's look at your pipeline. Do you have people that you're talking to right now? How many people right now are actually at the point where they're ready to say yes? Okay, so what I want you to do is I want you to call that person right now and ask them, to work with you. Hire them. Get them to hire you. Ask them right now. I charge $150 an hour and we start Tuesday. And, you know, it, it's, it's jarring at times for people who don't do this that easily. But when they start to do it more, this is like the behavior modification thing. All mm-hmm. of a sudden it becomes like, wow, that wasn't as bad as I thought. The person said yes, you know. Or they said no and I'm still alive. You know, I didn't die, you know, as a result <laughs> of them saying no. So it, it's a fear. It's just getting over this barrier, a behavioral barrier they have. And by doing it, the action, on a repeated basis, in spite of the fear, people overcome. Now, do you do a role-playing with, with a client sure. like that? Okay. big time. Absolutely. Nope. That's a very big part of it. I play the client or I play them, depending upon what works. Mm-hmm. You walk through it a number of times. And sometimes you can carve out a new part of your brain through language. If you say something in a different way you've ever said it before, you actually think about it differently, right? 
Sure. So if I can get somebody to repeat a certain way of asking for something in a way they never have before, the formation of words and the use of words repeatedly actually can make that action or that particular conversation easier because you've trained your brain to say those words. It's amazing, but we avoid saying things. Can you think of an example, like a very specific one? Well, you know, it's so different than, uh, like I just said, you know, uh, uh, in particular one client, one client of mine who's a salesperson, who's actually quite good at talking to people and getting people to like him, but he, he's always he'd get to the point where he can close the deal and he would let it trail on. He had a lot of open opportunities that could have closed. Like, why is this? Why do you have like six or seven different customers who have given you buying signals and you haven't asked them for the order yet? And uh, it turned out that, in fact, he was afraid to. He kind of didn't. He was waiting for them to go okay. And yeah, he did a pretty good job of it. We could speed the process up. So I actually got him on the phone and I actually told him, this is what I want you to do. I want you to actually say, okay, let's talk about this you know, Friday, Mr. Smith. I'm calling up specifically to close this deal. Mm. Can you start with me today or can you sign on with me today or can we sign the contract, the paperwork today? Can we get started today? Or when can we get started? Or can I send you the paperwork? Something of that nature. You know, and um, was, I remember the guy was sweating and he was all nervous. It was, it was outside of his norm. You know, he was very kind of a manipulative salesperson. He let the other person say, okay, I'll sign up with you. And uh, after doing this with a few clients, he found that, in fact, most of them said yes. He did his job well. He got people willing to say yes. He just never asked. And did the, uh, did, the, 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 did the sweats go away from him? Does he now have that yeah. same? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, we are actually able to track that his pipeline shrunk, meaning that he was able to close business sooner mm. over time. Yes. And so what that did was that freed up a lot of opportunities to put more in the pipeline. So that was, I remember this guy specifically. It was actually a pretty, uh, pretty cool case of uh, – uh, real, just a very simple behavior modification. This, is, this isn't rocket science, you know. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not claiming here to be like Einstein about this. This is simple. But the difference is that being able to uh, work with somebody to get them to be able to see that there's a simple behavior they're not taking and get them and motivate them to take that behavior on a repeated basis can change their whole way of operating. And it, it's pretty effective, you know. But the areas I think I actually find most challenging and most fun are, is actually managing people. Okay, tell me more. Manage, well, managing people is the hardest thing in business. You know, it's easy when you work alone, right? You work alone. Do you have any employees? Uh, not at this time. Exactly, right. So you wake up and you have to manage yourself. But you and I know it's hard. It's even harder to manage other people. How do you motivate people? How do you get people to do what they say they're going to do? How do you get people to listen to you? How do you get people to fulfill on their promises? How do you keep people consistent? How do you get people to care about your business as much as you do? Those are really, really hard things for managers to do. And in some cases, they fail. And it's a combination of things. It's not just my skills. It's also the person that I hired. How do I hire? How do I vet people when I meet them to determine if they're the right fit for me? These are really, really hard things for a lot of people to do, particularly entrepreneurs who start their own businesses. They never manage people before. They learn on the job. They don't come with any management skills. They're not born with management skills. Mm. Are, are those skills generally developed? All of them are, yes. All of them. Okay. Now, let's face it. Let me just say that some people have a talent for it. 
You know that, right? I mean, you see people who seem naturally able to communicate well and motivate people and other people who don't. I mean, that's just a personality trait. But then it has to be developed, you know, um, especially when you're creating an organization that has strata and hierarchies mm-hmm. and layers, right? So if I have, for example, a middle management layer beneath me that manages other people, now I have to learn how to manage them to manage other people the way I want. Those are the people to be managed. It becomes really challenging. So you know, you've worked inside then of large corporations? Yeah, I have. I've worked for in departments of large corporations. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goldman Sachs hired me once to work with one of the middle management people who had about six or seven different people underneath him. And I was also hired uh, once to coach a woman who was responsible for the entire secretarial pool for one of the largest law firms in New York City. She had 500 people underneath her. 500. Wow. Yeah. Now, she didn't manage all of them. She had sub-managers, but she was responsible for the oversight of the entire secretarial pool. And she had a lot of challenges in being able to effectively communicate her needs, her, her demands, her responsibilities, her expectations to all these different people. We had to have a lot of different meetings about it. It was actually it was a fascinating execution. It was fun. Years ago, I actually had a, a I did temp work at one of those kinds of firms. It was Paul Weiss, if you know them, mm-hmm. one of the largest sure. firms. And I worked insane hours, and I, I got to see what they what they did. It was really really uh, quite a factory of, uh, to produce the, the volume of work. You know, it's fascinating, isn't it? And, you know, that's what human resources departments are for, and they usually tend not to do a very good job. I haven't actually found human resources organizations within companies to be very effective at this. They usually hire out. They usually hire people like me to come in and do this kind of thing because they're pretty good at, like, doing all the paperwork, you know, and filling out all the forms for people's medical care plans and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to actually having to, like, help people and train people, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. And uh, it's a very unique skill set. You kind of have to love it. You know, it's not, it's not something that's really that – it's a certain kind of personality like this. Um, I was hired once. This is a really great story. I was, at, I was at the gym once. I was sitting in the sauna with a towel wrapped around me, okay? <laughs> and there's a guy in the sauna with me, just me and this other guy. And it's an awkward thing. You know, you're in the sauna. You know, what do you talk about? You know? So – you know, you start talking business. I do, I do this. Turns out the guy's an architect. He has his own architecture firm. It's local. It's right near the gym. He asks me what I do. I tell him, I'm a consultant. I do business coaching. I work with executives. Blah, blah. He says, really? Uh, he starts telling me all his problems. That happens a lot, by the way. When I tell people I do this, everyone all of a sudden is like, oh, great. I can tell this guy how much my partner sucks, you know? So, so the guy starts giving me all this spiel about you know his business, and I'm like, oh, so I like a bit of some you know, insight tips and whatever. I wasn't even thinking about it, and he asked me my name, and he called me the next day, and uh, I went in there, and he introduced me to some of his people. He had about a seven-person architecture firm. They did very well, only high-end work, and I ended up working with this guy for eight years. I actually built his built his company with him up to 25 people. I only recently just ended that engagement last year. Hmm. And um, we started out just working one-on-one with him. And his challenges were really, really basic. It was like, how do I run a business? I mean, I'm great at designing houses. But how do I get architects to do their job? How do I communicate these different, you know, rules and responsibilities? And how do I, you know, deal with people when they're upset? What if someone's mad or they're not happy? He was, like, really, really, really very challenged by this stuff. So... um, 
I hired a couple of people to work underneath him. We had to set some very specific types of communication structures. I helped facilitate meetings. I actually helped them hire people. And then I would actually conduct his internal meetings on a weekly basis with the staff. And uh, we worked out a really nice arrangement for eight years. And um, you know, we, we got to the point where I think he, he really developed his business to the point that he felt it was working. And uh, we decided to kind of move on and got stale. But that was a very, very rewarding experience. And my point being is it really started from somebody who just was frankly frustrated about the fact that he had a deal with managing people. Undoubtedly the hardest thing that people have to do. And, of course, you know, you looking really good in a towel probably helped. Hmm. It's a given. Absolutely. Yeah, I now, hang out at the gym all the time now. That's where I get all my work. They, <laughs> I have to remember I got a good towel so I can start getting some more business myself. Yeah. That's what I need to yeah, do. It's when the towel comes off. That's when the big, big gigs start coming Oh, out. yeah. Some some cases the small gigs that we don't want to talk Thank about. You. That. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, well, mm. I'm, talking, I'm speaking personally. So yes. uh, I'm just wondering, Ryan, anyone uh, listening, if you would like to ask Warren and Zen a question, you can reach the, our show at 646-929-2893 and just press number one so I all know you have a question. Or you can come into the chat room on the site and post a question there as well. We have a couple of people in there so far. No questions. So uh, I wanted to ask you, Warren, how – did you develop these kinds of skills for yourself that you were able to now impart to other people? It's a great question. I like your questions. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I, and the fact is I've had this question asked to me a lot, and the answer is I don't really know. I mean, it's not like I embarked upon this. I didn't say, oh, wow, I want to be a, a consultant or a, a coach. I mean, I never thought that. I think that, as a matter of fact, I went to school for uh, art. And theater. I was a painter. And I had a creative, you know, side to me. And uh, I guess I always felt that I enjoyed helping people. I mean, it sounds kind of cheesy, trite, but that's really it. I mean, I felt that it was not uncommon for my friends and people that I worked with to kind of gravitate towards me and ask me my opinion or my assessment of something. And I found I was pretty effective at being able to uh, make a good cut at what was going on. I had a very keen sense of uh, in, in, intuition about a particular circumstance, particularly where it came to people and their effectiveness or what was in their way. And uh, I enjoyed it. And I started getting involved in reading a lot of books about psychology and reading a lot of books about self-development and training. Fascinated me. I don't know why, but there's something about the idea of people I find it amazing how human beings in general are kind of, in a way, born one way, which is when they come out of the womb, I think they're probably just pretty much just empty shells, empty vessels with some genetic propensities. People come out with certain levels of intelligence. People come out of the womb with certain skills and certain talents. I think there's no doubt about that. I mean, I don't know. My son... You know, and he was five years old. For some reason, he could throw a perfect fastball, and his eye, hand-eye coordination was outstanding. So that's just an innate thing. But your personality, you know, some of it's genetic, and some of it, and most of it, I'd say, in my opinion, most of it's learned. It was learned by the environment that you're in. 
I mean, we can't predict that. We don't know where we're going to be born. We don't know the kind of parents that we're going to have. We don't know what our socioeconomic status is going to be. We don't know the kind of messages that we're going to get about money and about love and about people and about work. And these things are all just kind of forced upon us by virtue of circumstance. So then the rest of your life when you're an adult is unlearning that process, right? I mean, there's few people who come to this conclusion at some point in their lives that they generate a level of awareness about how they were raised and what their habits are like, and then they either live with them and they never change, and then there are some people who for some reason have the ability to recognize them, develop an awareness about it, and change it. And that's where I come in. I really find it really fascinating that there are some people whom, uh, by virtue of their own will and their own desire to improve or do better or whatever, kind of take control of that process and almost kind of rewire their brains. And I like to work with people on doing that. I think it's fascinating. And I've done it for myself a couple of times, sometimes very successfully, sometimes completely unsuccessfully. And there are some things I'm still working on to this day that I'm working mm. on. And I think it's, an on, it's a never-ending process. But the people that work best with me, the people that I find I'm most successful with, are those who are at this point where they've come to some self-conclusion, that they realize that what it is that I'm doing has worked up to this point. It's gotten me this far. And it's working for me. But you know what? I realize that if I want to do this better or if I want to do this differently, if I want to have a bigger business or I want to have a better relationship with my wife or if I want to have a better relationship with my friends or I want to, whatever the case may be, I need to improve this stuff or I need to change something because it's definitely something that's not working. Um, the people that I tend not to work well with are people whom are more victims. Like, uh, you know, it's not my fault. The world is against me and I'm doing everything right and no one cooperates. It's never the case. You know, and so I just think that uh, it's very important to, uh, to 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 find people who are, who are at a point where they have a level of commitment, a personal commitment, and awareness, and an openness to the idea that something that I'm doing needs to change, hmm. or else this is not going to make a difference. So, so so let me kind of the corollary to that is the situations I find that are not successful, and this happens a lot, is when somebody at an organization makes a determination that somebody else needs coaching and they hire me to come in and coach that person. Right. The first thing I ask is, does this person agree with you? Does this person see that they have this issue too? And are they as committed to this as you? Or are you just putting me on them? Am, am I going to be occurring for them like an annoyance? or like some kind of an imposition, because it'll never work. You'll waste your money on me and their time. So let's get that straight first. And in many cases, you know, I walk away from those situations. Mm. I say, listen, this is not going to work, because this person is not vested personally in any change. Therefore, no matter what I say or how brilliant or stupid I may be, nothing's going to happen here. So the best clients for me are ones who've made a commitment. That's why... I like to charge a lot of money, frankly. It's a mechanism because what it does is when somebody has to pay a lot of money for something, mm -hmm. they tend to value it more. Absolutely. This is costing me money, right? I mean, wow, this is expensive, so I better, I better do something with this investment, all right? So, you know, I think that's a big mistake that a lot of some consultants make is they kind of, you know, they don't charge enough. And I, I, it, it's a mechanism of, of motivation. So, you know, when I actually asked a question, I didn't wasn't really meaning so much about your abilities to to coach, although that's a great like those it's a great oh, so answer. That whole answer I just wasted your time? No, it was actually a great answer. I could I I could actually switch the question and now you just answered that perfectly. It's a great answer. It's a great answer. 
That was but brilliant. I, brilliant answer. But I was okay. actually wondering about the, some of the specific skills that you have, like, for example, ha, uh, in sales or in management. Oh, uh, okay. Good question. Yeah. Right, so I, 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 I uh, uh, concurrently, through my, my coaching career, I've actually also been working for the last 12 years as a salesperson ah. and sales manager. So, so uh, people ask, well, how do you do that? Well, you know, the fact is that um, you know, the engagements I've had and the coaching assignments that I've had have been uh, manageable enough that I've been able to do them while I have full-time jobs, mostly in the marketing and uh, uh, creative development uh, field, uh, the Internet mostly. So I come to the table with a lot of knowledge about marketing and a lot of knowledge about uh, sales. So I bring those to the table. Uh, sales skills are universal skills. I said that before. I don't want to repeat myself too much, but let's face it. We're always selling. So, yes, my sales skills have been very helpful in my coaching, and they were all developed through uh, having jobs in uh, selling uh, creative and marketing services to corporations. Ah, got it. Okay. Now, I want to talk about leadership because I know you do executive leadership development, and I know you personally as a leader. And I'd like to know, how to, first of all, how do you define leadership? Great. Um, well, I guess there's two kinds. You know, some people are born leaders. I know it sounds kind of cheesy, but there are. I mean, you know, I, I've done experiments, you know, where they take, you know, groups of people and they just put them into a situation and they just watch and observe. And it's amazing, but uh, it always turns out there's always one or two people that just naturally just take charge of the situation. And then the rest of the people tend to follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people are just preordained to want to lead, and some people are not, and some people are fine with following. Uh, and thank God for the world that there are more followers than leaders, right? Sure. So um, that's the way it works. So, so you got so you got that thing, but then you also have leadership, which is just basically by virtue of circumstance. You know, um, sometimes you're you're in a situation where you've been given a responsibility. You now are responsible for other people, so you're now a leader. So you know, it's like a jacket. You got to put it on and you got to wear it, right? So the leadership is uh, very much uh, defined by the person who's sitting in the chair. You know, uh, I don't know about you, Andrew, but I've seen plenty of people that have the kind of title of leader, and they're not leaders. You know, they just happen to be stuck in a position where they manage people, but they're not leaders. Mm-hmm. So how do I define leadership? You know, I define leadership as someone who is responsible for the well-being of other people, someone who has uh, the uh, – the burden, as I, I use that word not negatively, but the burden of other people's uh, values or other people's incomes or other people's uh, results uh, is their responsibility. And someone who uh, is willing to take on uh, challenges and tasks that are sometimes uh, bigger than their own needs. And what about the place, say, of, of vision in leadership? Well, you know, good leaders have a vision. I mean, a leader who's really solid and committed to being a leader will be able to answer that question very quickly. You'll go to a really well-defined leader and say, what's your vision for your leadership? And they'll be giving an answer. But, you know, that's something that a lot of leaders can't articulate. It may, like, live inside their brain or it may live inside their heart, but they haven't really articulated it yet. So that's actually one of the things that I like to do when I work with leaders is first have them say, like get clear, clear about that, it's like a mission statement or a leadership statement or something of that nature, so that they, in fact, can define it and get their arms around it. Like I said before, language is power. When somebody has the ability to articulate something clearly, it becomes real for them. 
That's what the de- Declaration of Independence was. I don't want to get kind of sappy here, but let's face it. Everybody that was responsible for writing the Declaration of Independence was able to articulate it in some way or another before they wrote it down. But once it was declared in that paper form, it became a real thing. It actually became a living thing. So I think that when someone declares their vision or they declare their purpose, it has a, it lives in reality in a much more powerful way. It becomes something that now is actionable. So that's important, you know. Absolutely. So what is what are some of the ways that you've been able to develop leaders? Uh, well, you know, uh, working with sales managers, uh, you know, people are sometimes are afraid to lead. You know, some people don't step into themselves. You know, like, you know, I don't know, you've seen this before many times in the organizations we've worked in together, you know. But you see a guy who's clearly a natural leader, but for some reason he just won't, like, own it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he won't, like, take charge of it. He won't declare it. So there's been instances where there have been sales managers where I work with whom, you know, they're responsible for five, six, seven people, but there seems to be some reluctance on their part. Like they're not fully grabbing the reins and saying, you know, I'm a leader, I own it, I'm not, you know, I'm in charge, and yes, God damn it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the man. You know, they're kind of a little mamby-pamby about it. And I think that, that, that again, it's kind of getting, getting someone in that position to make that shift because, you know, let's face it, you know, I, don't know, you, I don't know, you don't have kids, but, you know, when you have kids, you know, leadership is very, very evident. You know, kids are brilliant this way. You know, you know when you're leading and you know when you're not. Because when you're leading, your kids listen to you. When you're not leading, they don't, you know. Mm. And it's all very black and white, you know. So, you know, uh, raising children is a uh, exercise in leadership because um, uh, what is leadership? Leadership is respect. Leadership is uh, reverence. So when a real leader is doing his job well, when he speaks, people listen. When a leader is doing his job well, when he makes a request, people do it. When he has an expectation, people fulfill it. And I think that this is a critical thing. And so the way, the best way to gauge leadership is not by how they feel about themselves, but how well the people around them feel about them. So we do a lot of things that we – one of the things that I've employed is a 360 evaluation. You ever hear of this before? No. Tell me. Okay. Well, it's really – it's a great tool. What you do basically – let's say I'm working with someone who's in a very high level of authority in an organization. It's like a senior manager or an executive-level person. One of the first things that we do is we do a uh, – literally, we do a survey. We take a, po- a poll of different sections of people in different parts of the organization underneath this person, and it's anonymous, so no one has to reveal who they are. And we basically get a very, very good, well-rounded cross-section of what people's assessment of that, leader's pers- of that leader is. For example, things like, do you respect him? Do you listen to him? What are you disappointed at him about? You know, what, if you had the ability to say something, what would it be? And it's amazing what you see. I mean, you see this great information comes back. You, know, you find out people think I'm arrogant or no one likes me or when I speak, no one listens or I don't listen to people or I don't, uh, I don't think I know what I'm doing, you know, whatever. And the way we approach this is let's not look at this information like it's personal. Let's not look at it like it's to be insulted by or hurt by. Let's look at it more like it's just data, D-A-T-A, just data, right? And all this is is data that we now need to manage. So the idea being is that if this leader can take on significant behavioral changes over six months' time, if we do a poll again, those responses should change, right? I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if someone thinks that I don't listen well, right, or I don't respond well to something, then if I made it a purpose 
for the next six months to really listen well and really respond well, it's likely that if I ask that person again, they'd say, yeah, you know, actually now he does, right? So that's the whole way that we gauge leadership is not by what they think, but what by the people they're leading think. So we did this process. It takes about, like I said, about six months. And it starts out with this survey. And that survey ends up with a result. And we can see some consistencies in some of the responses. And then those responses then generate a coaching program in which we go to work with this leader to make changes in those areas to affect the change that will result in a different response from the same poll six months later. And it's very black and white, and it's extremely effective. And uh, let me tell you something. The leaders that I've been working with, uh, they're fascinated by these answers they get. You know, some of these guys, leaders are big egos, and they tend not to be able to be such good judges of themselves. So, you know, when they get these responses back, some of these answers, it can be a pretty jarring experience for some of these guys and very humbling for them to realize that, you know, half the people that responded said you're a real jerk, you know. So, so these are, this is, it's, real, it's really a very powerful thing, and, and I like to do that a lot. So anytime I'm working with somebody who is responsible for a lot of people, it's one of the first things I suggest. Awesome. You know, looking at, I don't normally like to talk about politics, so I'm just going to keep it separate from the idea of politics, but when you look at the leaders who are out there in the world of, you know, whether presidential, governor, senator, those types of leaders, who, who, who out there do you see that strikes you as being a really strong leader? And who might, who is really, that strikes you as like, they don't belong there? Well, yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, I, I don't care for politicians at all on both mm-hmm. sides of the land, uh, especially lately. I think that we're all pretty frustrated with what's going on right now in this country sure. around this. Um, and I think that what, what ended up happening is that, um, again, I don't want this to drag into a political discussion. Yeah, and I'm really speaking to, 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 to I, the leadership I quality. I, I, I want to speak to something here because it's an important one and that it's about purpose-driven leadership because what ends up happening with politicians in particular is, you know, they're lifetime politicians. You know, they're no longer people. You know, they're, right. they're, 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 they're kind of almost become political machinists. And so they're no longer – like the original founding fathers actually wanted to have it that congressmen and senators actually had day jobs. They were plumbers. You know, they were carpenters. And then they would meet in the weekends or at night, and they would, they would conduct business on behalf of the government. But that's not the case anymore. So what's ended up happening is that people aren't leading from purpose anymore. This is their job. So they're leading from survival. Hmm. So when you're leading from political survival, you're no longer thinking about a vision. You're thinking more about, you know, how am I going to get elected next year? Or how am I going to get my constituency to give me, you know, more money or something like that? So I think a lot what's happened with leadership in this country is that it's turned its head being from driven from purpose. It's being really driven more from kind of survival and, you know, it's a more mundane thing. So that's one thing. So, so the people that I admire in, the, in this country that are leaders are ones who have enough money to not have to do political work. But do it anyway. Well, that so sounds like uh, our our, uh, our uh, mayor. Yeah, well, you know, I, I happen. I, I here's here's what I think about uh, Mayor Bloomberg, and I happen to, you know, I, I voted for him, and you know, why not? I mean, the competition was fairly awful. But you know, I, I don't have any doubt in my mind that he's um, a noble man, and I think that he definitely leads for purpose. There's no question about it. I mean, the guy doesn't have to do this. Um, so right away, I trust the fact that he's probably coming from a good place. I don't always agree with his policies. I have a tendency to think that sometimes he tends to lead from his ego. He thinks that, you know, like, for example, controlling the way people eat, stuff like that to me doesn't really fly. However, he does strike me as a good leader in that he was a leader in industry, certainly built up an incredibly uh, profitable uh, organization with Bloomberg. 
And then he left that, and now he's a philanthropist and a mayor. So to me, he's definitely a natural leader, and he's someone who wants to cause change in the world. And in that respect, I give him the benefit of the doubt, because I don't doubt, frankly, that he's ever coming from a place where he wants to do what he can to lead, be purpose-driven, make a difference in the world, and have a positive impact. So yeah, I guess he, he could be a, an example. Um, I kind of like Mayor Koch, you know. I thought he was a contextual leader. You know, he, he came from a place of a lot of conviction. I mean, he never doubted what Mayor Koch thought. He's always very clear about his opinions about things. He didn't waver. And he still ever, is. <laughs> and he still does it. And I really respected that guy. He's um, he's also not um, uh, wavered by uh, his party, uh, someone who makes their own convictions and makes judgments based on the situation and not by um, their affiliation to me as a leader someone who has conviction in their beliefs about something and assesses things based on that only to me as a leader, that takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of uh, personal integrity, and those are people that I respect and admire. And we, uh, how about and we have uh, – we currently have a governor in New York who is a lame duck, who is uh, uh, certainly somebody who, to me, has lost his, uh, his voice within leadership. And what do you make of a situation like that? Yeah, he had a real, it's a shame. He had a real opportunity, you know. Uh, Patterson, as you know, he kind of, you know, you know, he stepped into the job under very unusual circumstances. Um, as you probably know, the way it worked, you know, a deputy mayor, much like a vice president, is kind of like really more like a showpiece type of a position. Nobody really knew who David Patterson was in the larger scheme of things when uh, uh, Spitzer was governor, and um, that's because the job is really designed to kind of create another constituency for the, for the governor. So when uh, Spitzer fell from grace, you know, Patterson was, was put in a position where he really had an opportunity, and in my opinion, I think he blew it. And I think the reason, frankly, is because, A, I don't think, in my opinion, based on observing him, he wasn't really ever up to the job. I think he, he took on a job that was bigger than he was ready for, and I think that he seems to have some – Again, going back to what I said earlier, it's my opinion that I think David Patterson also may be suffering from some inability to manage his uh, personal uh, habits, as mm, it were. Sure. Um, you know, being a leader is hard, you know. I mean, you almost have to be kind of like a priest in a way. I know it sounds kind of stupid, but, you know, today, in today's world, it's harder and harder to lead because, you know, um, the, the – the, uh, I didn't say the – no, not the press. It's just the general public opinion. Mm. You know, the scrutiny of everyone's actions is heightened at a level sure. that I've never seen before, right? I mean, even if you work at a corporation or anything, I mean, everything that you do is, is observed and information can be spread so quickly that, you know, the, the amount of scrutiny and uh, the, you live under a microscope when you run anything these days. And I think that the best leaders are ones that have developed themselves emotionally and in a way that they have put their purpose forward and first and understand that they need to manage and control some of their personal emotions and feelings and desires and impulses. And that takes a lot of discipline. And uh, people that do that effectively, I really have an immense amount of admiration for. That's, that's an incredibly disciplined and purpose-driven person. And there aren't that many of them. And, and I don't fault people that aren't. I mean, I'm a humanist, man. Believe me, I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of flaws, uh, personal flaws, and, and, and I battle with them kind of like everyone does. And we try and manage them as best we can. I'm simply saying that I admire people who do it better than me. I, I, hmm. I've always looked up to people who have control over um, how they behave and can do it consistently because they're driven by a higher purpose. That to me is uh, it's a, that's a really, really powerful leadership quality that I, 
I'd like to you know, aspire to myself, and, and if I could aspire other people that work with me to do so, that would be uh, quite a victory. Well, you know, you could show up in life like uh, like a Tiger Woods, and of course I'm not, not speaking of his golf abilities, or you can show up as, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Ron Howard, who is, here's a guy who um, certainly is extremely, extremely successful, and he... I don't think you you could you could you could dig and dig and dig and you're not going to find a thing on him. Yeah, I would say him and probably Tom Hanks is the one. Tom Hanks was my my second uh, the second. Uh, you know, I don't again. There's things about him I don't particularly like, but without doubt, I admire something about Tom Hanks, and that is that he definitely uh, is someone whom, without doubt, maintains a, a clean and uh, uh, integrous life. He has a good reputation. He seems like someone you can trust. He seems like he's good for his word, and he never has any attitude. He's very humble, and he's engaging, and he's successful. And in Hollywood, you don't see that a lot, and that's fine. I mean, I happen to love Hollywood, and I don't mind people who are a little crazy. I think that was to make Hollywood so much fun. But you're right. I mean, there are people like you're right. There are people who, on the other hand, you know, having that kind of notoriety and having that kind of leadership role is completely screws them up. I mean, look at how many people die from drug overdoses and suicides or really, you know, you look at these, you know, some of these young people particularly, you know, that get involved in these, to become famous early, they just, you know, having a lot of responsibility and notoriety can do a lot of damage to people. It takes a very strong will and a very strong amount of emotional uh, control and uh, self-groundedness. And I think a lot of that comes from the way you're raised, frankly. And like I said, getting someone to a point where they have the ability to kind of get out in front of themselves. You know, I mean, we're born and uh, we have certain skills and talents. and Then we have certain ways that we're raised. And, you know, at some point, I think that we get to a point where now it becomes our responsibility to take control of that. And some people just think they get uh, responsibility too early, you know, before they're willing to really understand how to deal with it. But, you know, what's great about that, too, is that most of these people, not most, that's not true, but a lot of them bounce back. There's something about a really amazing story. Like, for example, I take Tiger Woods, for example. I mean, right now it's kind of a, you know, it's an interesting story. Certainly it's one that creates a lot of uh, controversy and a lot of conversation around the, around the uh, water cooler talking about Tiger Woods' uh, escapades. But it's a fascinating thing, right? I mean, you look at it, right? You hear this guy who's at the best at what he does, at the world at his feet. And, you know, it turns out he's human. He's just like everybody else. Now, not to say that everybody goes around and, you know, screws, you know, 17 women in one night. But my point is that he's like, he's a person, you know. And now he's got to go deal with this. And this is part of his uh, growth phase. And we'll see what happens. Absolutely. Another thing I was thinking about, too, this is fascinating. I read this article today. This is a great, great story I read. It was about the fact that, you know, we just found out, you know, of course, Sandra Bullock, you know, almost like the same week that she wins the Oscar, which is like the coveted thing that any, you know, performer wants, also finds out that her husband is, you know, kind of been cheated on it for the last eight years. So that, that, what, this, what, this whole, what, this whole, what this whole article was saying was, so, so here, this, here this woman is, right, the height of her career. Right? She wins the most coveted award ever imaginable in acting, mm-hmm. right? Her sure. career now is now going to be gangbusters. I mean, they know statistically that anyone who wins an Oscar, their income doubles, right, that by virtue of that alone. And they also said, this is fascinating, people who win the Oscar live on average four more years longer than people who were nominated and didn't win. Huh. Okay? So there, there were, basically the article was going about this, this idea, this question, which is, she wins the Oscar, but she also finds out that this love of her life was, you know, lying to her, 
would you make that deal? Would you take that deal? Would you trade in the uh, deception of this uh, relationship for an Oscar? And, of course, this guy's answer was no. And the reason he laid out all his reasoning was because statistically, statistically, happiness comes from the kind of relationships that we have with people, not from the money that we get and not from the accolades that we get from our, 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 our accomplishments, but from relationships. Right. And that uh, she would have been happier in the long run if her relationship was what she thought it was without the Oscar. And it just went into this really, really interesting uh, thing. They made a lot of studies about this. They talked about just happiness in general and what happiness is and what, what generates it. And at the end of the day, it's not that you know, surprising to find out that you know, people who you know, have a trusting relationships with people, they feel connected to somebody, uh, they feel part of something, they feel included in a, an intimate relationship with someone they care about, those are people that tend to be the happiest. Um, money doesn't really last. Even when uh, countries develop economically, there's a spike in happiness, but then everything levels off, and then uh, it doesn't rise anymore. So it's not a uh, long-term thing that just because you get money that you're going to be happy, but people who are in relationships, they sustain they, their happiness increases as they get older. As a matter of fact, they find that people that are in their 60s tend to be the happiest. I wonder why. Well, because, you know, they've kind of gone through a lot of trials and tribulations. They've worked out a lot of things, and they're near the end. And I guess there's a perspective. I guess Andrew will find out, won't we? We'll know, right? 64, 65, we'll talk to each other again. We'll say, yeah, I'm pretty happy. I don't know why. Uh, I can crap again or something like that. You know, I don't know. But, um, uh, yeah, it was a fascinating article, and I thought it was, I found it to be true. Wow. Yeah, you know, I'm wondering if Meryl, Meryl Streep uh, gets more years. What, she get like She's 12 years? She's never no, she's never going to die. I think actually what's going to happen now is Merrill is going to win the Oscar in uh, the year 2057. I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I think that might be true. So guess yes. what? I do have a question from the chat room. Please. Okay, so our guest today, that's what they're, they're, they're calling themselves guest today, says, nice to hear how Warren refers to all leaders as he and, quote, be the man, unquote. Question, is there a difference in leadership training approach depend, depending on the gender? Yeah, I think there is. I think that you can't deny, and I've worked with women and men, so it's not like I have, and I apologize if I've used he a lot. I think it's more just a, uh, it's just a, a nomenclature thing. But nonetheless, um, I've worked with a lot of women. I mentioned uh, one in particular who was responsible for 500 secretaries under a secretary pool. And here's the difference is that I, I believe this is kind of controversial. Probably it's probably not as politically correct as it may be, but I think that men and women do think differently. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and uh, it doesn't mean one thing's worse or better. They're just different. You know, there's, there's different things. Women are better at relationship. Women are more related, I think. People, uh, women are more naturally inclined to uh, be more considerate of people's feelings than men are. Uh, this is my experience in working with them anyway. Um, but it's harder in a lot of cases for women to be in certainly corporate leadership positions because there's a lot of pressure on women to perform in certain ways that maybe uh, uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot more burden and challenge on it. And I respect and admire women who are, who are leaders in industry, particularly the ones I, I work with. So, yeah, there are differences. And um, like I said, I think that uh, women are more emotional. When I work with women, uh, I coached women. I find that uh, it was on, not uncommon, and it wasn't always the case, it was not uncommon for women to, to cry more when we spoke about these things in our sessions. Mm-hmm. Men tend to never do, you know. I think that's just an expression of emotion. And, um, you know, women, I think, in a lot of respects, are, are more competent managers of people than men are. 
naturally. That's just been in my experience. Okay, so for just just by nature of nature? I don't know what it is. I mean, I'm not certainly in a position to know, but it's just my experience. I think that uh, women just um, are more intuitive with people. I think they also take more into consideration um, people, how they feel about things. Okay, you know, men so tend to be very black and white and, like, get it done and screw right. you. I don't care what you feel and, you know, call me tomorrow or go see a doctor or get off my back kind of thing. Um, and also women are, for some reason, they're better at multitasking. Men are pretty myopic. Men can do, like, one thing really well at a time. You know, women, I, I, I noticed, can do, like, two or three things really well at a time. That's another skill set that I, I don't know why. I mean, I have no idea. It's probably some type of, you know, but... <laughs> So how do how do these sorts of things impact you? Like how you train or in leadership training? You know, I don't really. I, you know, I don't know. It, it's not something that I ever. I don't bring it up. It's not something that's discussed. Right, but have but have you noticed something that like that your training changes if you're working with women or if you're working with men or if there's no difference? Uh, yeah, probably. It's it, 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 it's a good question. I don't know if I like. I don't. I don't plan it. And I go, okay, I'm working with a woman. I got to do this differently. Um, I treat it all the same. I mean, there's a goal, mm-hmm. right? There's an intended result that the person mm-hmm. wants to achieve, and there are barriers, and we work with them, you know? But um, uh, Does your language some... change at all? No, no, yeah. no, no. No, I oh. try to maintain as much consistency as I can. Uh, it's really more people, you know? I mean, people are different, so certain people might communicate differently. Okay. Well, that was a very good question from a guest today. Mm, yes. Yes. <laughs> the mysterious the, guest today. Yes. Yes. The guest. Yeah. Well, guest today. 4189 has so far not uh, asked a question. 4189. Yes, guest 4189. And I, by the way, my, my cousin was actually on the line earlier. I recognized his number, but he did not raise his hand to ask a question, but that was very your, nice. Your, was it your cousin Shmuley? Not yeah, my cousin Shmuley. <laughs> yeah, uh, for any, uh, those listening, I, I posted on Facebook uh, for because it's April Fools. I had to do something that my guests next week will be Barack Obama, Cl- uh, Hillary Clinton, and Rabbi Boteach, or however you say his name. Yeah. I don't know. I got to go. My 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 son called me last night at one in the morning. Okay, he says mm-hmm. he's locked outside can't find his mother, he can't find his keys, he's really freaking out, he's really upset, what do I do? And he got me, it was April Fool's. Nice. Yeah, it was good, I was really worried, I was upset, and he was like, ah, April Fool's, it was one in the morning, and he asked. I actually was the uh, the actor in a uh, April Fool's gag today with a, a bunch of people who had me call this fellow who is both an attorney and they, he does some voiceover work, and I called uh-huh. him uh, as a made-up name from Warner Brothers on a made-up show, and okay. uh-huh. convinced him that uh, we found his work very interesting and would like to <laughs> possibly have him do some voices. And, and I got him to do some various things uh, on the phone. Uh, his, 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 he did a little Obama for me, and I got him to do. Uh, Tiger Woods uh, confessing and uh, to one of his women, and and uh, I told him, yeah, we're at 3:30 Madison, and he said, uh, you know, and he actually, I 
you know, called back and uh, I, I wasn't using my phone. I said I had to answer the phone and oh, it was really funny. I, I don't oh, know great. if he actually showed up at this uh, address, but well, good for you. <laughs> he, by the way, is a king of practical jokes. Uh, uh, well, George Clooney is the true king of practical jokes, but this guy yeah, is yeah. right up there. So anyway, uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I hope this has been valuable. I don't know. I, uh, yes, I you you know, I'm, Warren. I'm putting, myself, I'm putting myself to sleep here, so I uh, I, I, I hope that this is a... You are not. If, well, if you press 2 on your phone, uh, there's an automatic coffee drip that we've installed on Blog Talk Radio. Okay, great. That'll wake you up. So Thank now you. we actually just have a few minutes left, so now's a good time. If you would like to let anybody know how to get in touch with you uh, if they'd like to uh, inquire about your services. Yeah, sure. Uh, then just email me, warrenzena at gmail.com. That's warren, Z-E-N-N-A, at gmail.com. Okay. Then, a note. I'd love to respond. That's terrific. And uh, so what's next for you? Well, what's next? That's a great question. I was actually thinking about... Um, uh, doing some more uh, public speaking and focusing also on helping people with their presentation skills. That's a really big area I like to work with people on is how to get up in front of other people, make an impact on people. Talking in front of people, as you know, is a scary thing for a lot of people, and I think that it's a, it's a skill set, and it's one that you can develop. Some people are better at it than others, and some people always will be, but I think it can be developed, and I've seen people really improve the way they can communicate in front of large groups. So that's, that's something I'm, I'm kind of working on right now. So... Um, I'm really good at it myself, so I'd like to kind of pass on that wisdom to people who have to make presentations and uh, are maybe less are more reluctant to do so. Well, you know that's a that's a place where you and I will probably need to have a conversation because you know the truth is I can speak uh, I can I can get up and sing in front of a thousand people when I get up and speak uh, it's it's a tr- tremendously different experience for me. I see. No, it's not uncommon. Yeah. So uh, sure, sure, I'd love to help you. Let me know Great. if I can help you. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I want to thank my guest, Warren Zena, for uh, some terrific information, being a great guest here on Blog Talk Radio, Coach's Corner, and thank everyone for listening. We'll be back next week, same bat time and same bat station, with my guest, Gail Murphy from interviewtactics.com. So everyone, please have an outstanding next seven days, and we'll see you next week. Good night. Thank you so much, Andrew. This was great. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.